Hey everybody, uh, welcome to the very first live episode of Dagish America Presents. We're so happy to have you here. Uh, I am your host, Ben Harrell, uh, and I, like I said, I'm very happy that all of you decided to join us today. Uh, you know, all of our episodes that we've done so far, have, uh, we've always kind of pre-recorded them. Uh, you know, they've all been conversational. It's just us kind of having conversations with people in the industry, talking about uh, all of the different topics that we want to discuss. But we wanted to do a little bit of something different today. We wanted to have a, a, a live session so we could kind of ask questions on the fly. Um, we had some questions sent in to us uh, from some of the listeners over the last uh, several episodes of season two. And we've, uh, so we're kind of feeling some of those questions. But if anybody listening has any questions, just feel free to type them into the comment section. Let us know. We'll be happy to answer those questions for you as we go uh, throughout this. Um, uh, this is also, also our first time hosting this on our YouTube page. So if you haven't been to our YouTube page before, welcome to our YouTube page. Uh, please uh, uh, subscribe to our YouTube page. Uh, we have all kinds of information that we host here, uh, all kinds of different training videos, informational videos. All of our podcast episodes also uh, get sent here on a, uh, well, every time they're published, they get published directly to our YouTube page as well. So it's also an, a nice resource uh, for you if you want to listen into our podcast episodes. So I'm going to introduce our guests today. Uh, yeah, you may recognize the names. They, uh, both of these uh, gentlemen have been on uh, podcast episodes in the past. Uh, so I, w I wanted to bring them back because they're fantastic. Uh, they have a fantastic amount of information to share with us, especially when it comes to phosphine fumigations, which is what season two has all been about. Uh, so uh, we have uh, Bartek Dronowski, who's the COO of Dagish America, joining us. And then we've also invited Blake Buckner, our business development manager, to join us today. Uh, so thanks a lot, gentlemen. I really appreciate you taking some time out of your busy schedules uh, to join us today to help answer some of these questions. Well, thank you, Ben. Uh, the, the podcasts have been very uh, educational and entertaining as well. And I'm delighted to be a part of this first live broadcast. So uh, hope, hope all the listeners are enjoying it as well and viewers are enjoying it as well. Absolutely. I echo those sentiments, Bartek. Appreciate it, Ben. Thank you. Oh, no problem. No problem. Yeah, this is a this is a new foray for us. I, I, every, all the podcasts that we've done so far, we've all done just audio. Uh, but we wanted to kind of jump out of our comfort zone a little bit. And hopefully it's going to go well. Hopefully we don't have any technical difficulties today. Hopefully it goes well. But uh, it, it, we're hoping that we'll be able to do a lot more of these uh, live or at least video-based podcast episodes in the future. Um, so you can kind of put faces to the names, so to speak, for those of you who haven't actually met us in person before. Uh, so we did uh, get some questions from our listeners uh, over season two about phosphine. We, and we had some really good ones. And it's things that we didn't really necessarily cover in some of the episodes. So, uh, I mean, without further ado, I'm just going to jump right into some of these questions. And hopefully uh, Bartek and Blake will be able to answer some of these for us. So uh, the first question that we have up uh, has to do with the different types of phosphine that are on the market. Uh, what are some of the differences between bottled or cylinderized phosphine and packaged phosphine or metal phosphides? Um, I don't care who answers first, but uh, let, let's get into it. Blake, you, you want to go first or is that for me to go first? I'd, I'm happy to lead. Um, I guess <laughs> one, of the, one of the more obvious um, differences is going to be the, the speed of application. Um, with, uh, with a cylinderized or, or bottled phosphine, uh, you can get to your concentration almost instantaneously, um, whereas it takes, you know, days, hours to days 
uh, for that concentration to build up with the other formulations. I, I think that's probably the most the most obvious. Yep, for sure. And I think by the second, I'm sorry, the second biggest difference is going to be uh, any potential for residues. So depending on the commodity or the space that you're treating and how tolerant that area is for residues, if you're treating uh, uh, bulk grain, for example, which is going to undergo further cleaning processes, uh, then a, uh, a pressed compound like uh, the aluminum phosphide, phosphatoxin tablets, pellets, fumatoxin tablets, pellets, um, are, are, are the, the, the fumigant of choice in those applications. And if you're doing a larger volume, uh, magnesium phosphide would be the, the, the fumigant of choice. But um, those do, especially the packaged products, do come with an element of uh, disposal potential for deactivation, um, which the, the bottle of phosphine products do not have that challenge. Yeah, and those are very, very good points. Uh, I think another thing that uh, has to be considered, too, is with cylinderized phosphine, the packaging is reusable. <laughs> it's not disposable. So when you're done with the cylinder, uh, with the cylinders, you have to actually return the empty cylinders or the partially used cylinders in some cases back to the distributor or manufacturer, whereas with uh, the metal phosphides or packaged phosphine, they, they come in containers. They can either be recycled. They're aluminum, so they can either be recycled or disposed of or whatever the case is. So uh, there is some extra steps that you have to take uh, in order to make sure that those cylinders get back to the manufacturer or the distributor. Yeah, of course. Everything comes at a price, and, and obviously there is a fairly significant price difference in this cylinderized phosphine, gram for gram, if you will, between cylinderized phosphine and pressed compounds and even packaged products. Uh, but the offset is uh, the potential for any, uh, any, any packaged material or any residues that one may have to contend with post-fumigation. Uh, so that's yeah. that consideration. You brought up a very good point, Ben, about, uh, about the freight. So even when the fumigation is over, the containers have to be returned. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, the, the, the disposal, you know, you guys talked about the disposal and I mean, that's a key element to the metal phosphides and you don't always have to do disposal. You know, a lot of times you, you're mixing the pellets and tablets directly into the commodity. You know, if it's raw unprocessed goods, a lot of times you can mix that directly into the commodity. And so disposal is not really an issue. Disposal is going to get taken care of through the normal processing uh, of those raw agricultural commodities. But that's not always the case. Sometimes you do have to collect that stuff back up, especially when you're dealing with fumicells and you're dealing with uh, pre-packs and, and sometimes with loose pellets and tablets, you have to collect that stuff back up too. Uh, and then when you collect it back up, you have to, you have to prove that it's been deactivated, uh, through some means, whether it's wet deactivation, dry deactivation, um, because there is spent material that's left over. So you have to figure out some way to make that safe or prove that that's safe, uh, for normal disposal, um, with cylinderized phosphine, you don't have to worry about that. It actually starts out applied as a gas releases as a gas and then aerates as a gas. So all of these are ex excellent points when it comes to this product. Yeah, I guess right. another thing, Ben, is that um, with the application equipment, you know, I wouldn't necessarily call it ease of use, but, you know, when you're using cylinderized phosphine, you have to have all the application equipment that goes along with it, the, the lines and the fittings and scales and, and things of that nature. So that's a, that's a key difference as well. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, it takes it definitely takes uh, very specific application equipment to to apply cylinderized phosphine, and that stuff is under a, a pretty extreme amount of pressure. Uh, so, well, and it depends on what kind of cylinderized phosphine it is too. There are a couple of different on the uh, uh, concentrations in the market or, or types on the market. There's 100% phosphine, 
where you actually have to have very specialized equipment to blend it with air to make it safe for use uh, during the application process. And then you also have 2%, which the 2% is non-flammable in all proportions with air, but it, it's, its contents are under a very high amount of pressure. So you have to make sure that the application lines can handle that type of pressure during the application process. I mean, it can be several hundred PSI, depending on the, the temperature of the cylinder that you're dealing with, uh, which, again, as long as you're getting the right kind of application equipment, is completely uh, safe. Uh, but you have to make sure that you have stuff that's rated for the, for the type of PSI that you may uh, come, in, come into uh, contact with when, when working with this stuff. Dan, and you bring up a very good point about safety, and let's not forget one other very important aspect of safety, which is the safety of the fumigant when it's inside of the fumigated space, and it's no secret. Uh, that solid aluminum, magnesium phosphide, and liquid water aren't the best of friends. So <laughs> if you're applying to a structure <laughs> which may pose an element of risk or uncertainty as to whether or not uh, that's that's something that you can eliminate for sure, uh, again, the bottle of phosphine would be a more logical choice, again, at a different price point. So it's uh, yeah. it's good to have multiple tools in your toolbox when, when just like with any other integrated pest management process, to, to know what tool is going to suit that fumigation best is, is very critical to in selecting what type of fumigant and what sort of packaging of fumigant you know, that's going to be uh, that's going to be desired. Oh yeah, I mean, in, in all of those factors are going to play a part in that decision. Absolutely. Um, all right, so let's move on to another question here that we get. I actually, in my experience, in my as a fumigator, I've been asked this question quite a bit. Um, and the reason why I think this is asked is because the, the folks who have to do this aren't necessarily always licensed fumigators, um, but it has to do with aerating rail cars. Uh, we all know, or hopefully we all know as fumigators, that uh, we can fumigate with phosphine while it's in transit, as long as it's in a ship or it's in a rail car. You can't do it in, on public roadways, but as long as it's a rail car or it's a ship hold, you can actually fumigate it while it's being moved from one location to another location. Well, Wherever that destination ends up, whoever's responsible for that rail car, rail car they're going to have to aerate that or or prove that 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 there's no concentration of phosphine left or safe concentration of phosphine left inside that rail car. What does that person who's receiving that rail car that's been fumigated? What are some of the things that they need to know or be prepared for uh, when accepting that rail car that's been fumigated? Yeah. Ben, I think I can at least kick this off, um, and it's sort of beaten into the ground, but but for for good reason. Safety is first and foremost um, the first and foremost concern. Whether it be the monitoring equipment, which is probably the most important, and I don't I don't it doesn't matter whether it's tubes or electronic. You, you need to have monitoring equipment to be able to test for levels of phosphine on the other end, um, and then obviously uh, fall protection is 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 critical as well. Whether it's it's active or passive there needs to be some sort of fall protection measures depending on the type of car if you have to get on top to open the hatches and stuff like that um but you know just like everything you got to follow the label and it, it really it really kind of comes down to two two things who and how um and who is i don't know if adam could pull it up but who is um it's specifically outlined in the label and it's it's a little bit of a i won't call it a loophole it's actually a quite a, quite a good benefit that you don't actually have to have a certified a certified applicator on site. Um, I don't know if it's pulled up, but it, 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 you just need to have a person that has documented training on how to do that. Um, 
And it, it's cool that in the label, it actually, like I said, I don't know if Adam, Adam has pulled it up, but I can talk to it anyway. Um, it, it specifically designs that, I'm sorry, it, it specifically dictates what that training must entail. Um, so there's no questions on whether the person's properly trained or not. So I think that's, it's in section, uh, I think it's in section, yeah, it's in section 12 of the applicator's manual that gives those specific instructions. Right. And I think you bringing up safety is a really good point. I mean, we have to keep in mind that not only do we have to make sure that whatever commodity has been fumigated is safe for use and is at that 0.3 part per million or under limitation, but we also need to make sure that the person that's aerating or initiating the aeration and completing the aeration on that rail car, that their breathing zone is also under that 0.3 parts per million or if it's not, that they that they are aware of it in some capacity so they can wear the proper respiratory protection. So right. I'm really glad that you brought up that safety because that's all, that's something that, you know, uh, and I don't, correct me if I'm wrong, fellas, but I, I the people who receive the rail cars, they don't have to be licensed fumigators. That's they correct. They have to be trained in the ability to aerate the, the rail cars. So yeah. they may not have, uh, you know, everyday experience like a normal fumigator does when it comes to respiratory protection, what they need. So that training and that label is going to be critical to make sure that they know what they're doing when it comes to all of the respiratory protection they may need and what those levels are. That's right. And Ben, um, it's like you bring up a very good point about the training and the training is outlined in the applicator's manual. And uh, if I don't think a podcast episode ever went by without at some point somebody saying read the label the label is the law so <laughs> definitely read the label the label is the law and, and the label outlines everything that needs to be done oftentimes the label gets breezed through and and we, we, all, all of us seem to get complacent and as changes to the label get implemented we don't always keep up with it but one of the things that's most often overlooked in these in transit fumigations especially ones that have to do with rail cars is that there's a very specific requirement that the fumigator uh, or and or shipper has to provide certain documents to the receiver of that rail car so that they know that it's under fumigation, that they know what product was used, they know the quantity that was used on that product. So it's either something that can be sent ahead of time, or oftentimes you will see that it is something that's attached in a weatherproof envelope on the outside of the rail car that has the particulars as to what to do with it when it shows up, um, what the fumigant was, uh, as, well, as well as the uh, applicator's manual. So um, Going back to the manual, section 22.5 uh, in our in our applicator's manual for the uh, loose pellets and tablets goes into great detail as to what documents are required. Yeah, yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned the documentation that can be attached to the rail car as well. Um, if any of you out there work in some of these facilities and you receive rail cars and you see one that has warning signs or placards for fumigation on the rail car when you've received it or you see some of that uh, uh materials, uh, uh, the paperwork attached to a rail car, and there's any question at all whether or not that that rail car has been fumigated and whether or not it's been aerated, if you have not been trained in it, please do not try to attempt to do anything at all with that rail car. Go get your supervisor, go get a responsible, whoever, whatever party is responsible for that and let them know so they can confirm whether or not the, that rail car has been aerated. Yeah, and if, yeah, if, if they don't, and if they don't know, call us. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll be happy to help too. So. And, and something to note, something to note going back to the training that Blake had mentioned that's in section 12 of our applicator's manual, that training has to be conducted by a certified applicator who's certified in that state where the rail car is being received. So that way they are familiar with those particular laws or regulations 
concerning proper aeration of any fumigated structure. So um, if anybody's receiving rail cars, make sure that you have been, you have someone on your staff or you have members of your staff who have been properly trained per section 12 of the applicator's manual by a certified applicator in that receiving state. Yes. Yeah. That's another excellent point. You can't just be trained by the previous person who did it. If they're not certified to do it, you have that's to be correct. trained by somebody who, who is certified in that state. So there's, yeah, that's excellent. There's, uh, there's another thing that's, that's often overlooked um, is in section 18. Um, there's a different tolerance level for food and feeds and for non-food commodities um, that, that gets overlooked. Sometimes the, the food and feed is, is 0.1 parts per million and, the, the non-food commodities are, is 0.3. So it goes a little ex, extra step further. And there's a there's an important stipulation in that section as well, because a lot of, this gets confused a lot of times. They put they put an hour or a time value on the aeration, but they also put an or. Um, it's important to know that like, uh, even though it says 48 hours, it's not aerated until you reach those levels. Just because it says 48 hours, if it's not below 0.3 or 0.1, then it's it's not aerated. Yeah, that's a hard, fast rule. If you don't get it below 0.3 or 0.1, you have to continue the aeration process. And, you know, I've had calls from folks in the past that have called me and said, hey, I've had this I've had this real car aerating for six days now, and I'm still getting readings of one, two parts per million. Well, you're not done. I mean, you have to get it below the 0.3 or the part or 0.1, depending on uh, what, what you're working with there, um, especially when it gets colder. That that humigant phosphine doesn't like to move very well when it's colder outside. So when you get into colder months like it is right now in the U.S., you know, we're in December. Uh, a lot of the U.S. is pretty cold these days, uh, this time of year. Uh, you know, that, that phosphine, and it, depending on the d density of the commodity, it may take several days for it to actually uh, aerate out, out of the, out of the uh, rail car. So you need to be prepared for that as well. Yeah, for sure. And in the weather conditions... I think you're freezing up on us, Bartek. <laughs> one of one okay, of the sorry. side effects to to, to uh, doing a live feed. Uh, go ahead and that, say that again, Bartek. I, I said weather conditions play a lot into it as well. Obviously, oh yeah, you know, wind, humidity, all those, all those. So, if you if you are able to fumigate or aerate a rail car in a day or two once, that doesn't mean that's going to be the standard for every, every aeration going forward. That is an absolutely excellent point. You are 100% uh, right about that. If you're aerating on a day where there's high wind, that gas could aerate out of that rail car very fast. And if you're aerating on a hot day where there where the air is really still and it's really humid, it's probably not going to move very fast. So, excellent season three, well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, season three, fumigation yeah. meteorology. Yeah. <laughs> well, we could spend an entire podcast season just talking about weather and how it affects fumigation. That's for sure. For sure. All right. So one of the other things that we uh, run into a lot as far as questions and we got we get asked, we got asked this a lot and we, and we get asked this a lot um, is has to do with corrosion when using phosphine. Uh, a lot of people want to understand, you know, what are some of the ways that we can actually minimize uh, the chance for corrosion on soft metals and some of the things that, that can be corroded uh, inside facilities when we're using phosphine? Um, I, I can kick this one off, Blake. <laughs> um, so obviously, corrosion is a, is, a, is a fascinating mystery when it comes to phosphine because oftentimes there is no direct correlation to the concentration, the length of exposure. Uh, we're seeing um, 
humidity playing a factor in the development of corrosion. Uh, we have studied corrosion for decades um, and, 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 and there's still no clear cut answers. Here's what we do know is that corrosion is definitely a possibility when using phosphine. Uh, we have fumigated structures uh, with electrical panels for years without a single incident. And then you go in and do a one-time fumigation and every piece of wiring is completely corroded. So there's very little rhyme or reason to it. Uh, but we do know that uh, that all three of those, the length of exposure certainly increase the chances of it, the concentration or the parts per million uh, certainly may increase the, the risk of it. Uh, humidity may increase the risk of it. And oftentimes it's something that may not be visible for days, weeks, or even months later down the road. So the, 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 the reaction with the, with the phosphine uh, is, is the catalyst for the reaction and the, and, the, and the effects of it may manifest themselves uh, much later down the road. So basically the, the two basic rules of thumb if you wanna avoid corrosion is either A, don't fumigate with phosphine in that particular space, or two, if any way possible, remove anything that you're concerned with corrosion. Um, we have studied at, at length in our, in our test chambers various coatings, uh, various, uh, various treatments, um, you know, wax coatings for sprinkler heads, different types of grease coatings. Uh, we are looking into a, uh, in, into a conforming uh, polymer spray that could be used on some electronic equipment, but that's not going to work. Once the equipment's installed, that's really something that would have to happen at the uh, at the manufacturing level of the equipment prior to ever being in fumigation. So, um, we worked with a lot of customers that were proactive about it and and removed a lot of the uh, unnecessary equipment from the indoors to the outdoors. Alarm monitoring equipment, uh, you know, those sorts of sensors that don't necessarily have to be inside uh, to the out to the outside of the structure. One of the things that we've had. Uh, very poor, poor, result, poor results with is trying to wrap in plastic or tape up or, or somehow isolate uh, electrical panels and things like that because uh, I think most of us are under the understanding that very few things are truly gas tight. Uh, so if you, if you wrap a sprinkler head in plastic, uh, essentially what you end up doing is trapping fumigate in there so then during aeration that fumigate actually stays in and exposes that, that particular piece of equipment uh, to even longer periods of phosphine exposure. So uh, that's something that personally I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend. I've never had very good luck with it. So Blake, I don't know if you have anything to add on that. Yeah, I'll, I'll say something if oh, you don't mind me cutting off. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> All right, because um, you brought up a really good point about wrapping things in plastic. So yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. I haven't had a lot of success wrapping things in plastic, but I have had some success with uh, kind of doing kind of a reverse, what I, what I always called a reverse tape and seal. So I would actually, if you have like digital palletizers or larger equipment that you need to protect, you can actually uh, cover that in poly, completely encase it, and then you can actually, with, with air pumps, you can actually mm -hmm. pump fresh air into that, kind of blow it up like a balloon and, and have an, air, an ejection point too. So you have to have two lines so you don't blow it up to where it bops. Uh, but if you pump fresh air into that area, now the fumigant's still going to get in there, but it's going to get in there in, in lower concentrations. Now, that adds a lot of labor in some cases. Uh, I mean, so it's not always an ideal situation, but if you have one piece of equipment that you really need to protect and the customer is extremely uh, adamant about using phosphine, you can do it uh, carefully, but I would always suggest anytime you can remove any kind of uh, 
equipment or anything at all that poses a risk of corrosion, get it out of there. Don't fumigate with it or don't fumigate with phosphine. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, uh, no, Blake, but while we were talking about that, I wanted to mention that. So. Now, Ben, positive pressure is definitely one of the yeah. one of the only solutions, if you will, if if you if you have to if you have to have this equipment in there and you're still trying to to, uh, to protect it. Yeah. All right, Blake. Now you're up. <laughs> no, no, mine's actually it's it's sort of a uh, adjacent to the point, but it's it's still important. And of course, my mind always travels to safety, and this is less about. Um, mitigation and more about safety. If you are fumigating in, in a structure um, with phosphine, I think that probably the most critical thing to pay attention to, because you know, the, like Bartek said, the corrosion sort of like you know Michael Jordan in his heyday. It's you, you can't stop it. You can only hope to contain it. Um, so like, but the, the the fact of the matter is, it's going to get to your sprinkler heads. So you need to be doing your checks and doing your due diligence and checking those sprinkler heads. Because I think that if you're listening to this podcast, you're, you know that phosphine is not best friends with water. And the last thing that you want to happen is to have an issue with your sprinklers. So just make sure that you're uh, keeping up and doing your due diligence on your sprinkler systems if you're going to be fumigating in a, in a structure. Yeah, I don't know how in the world you managed to get a Michael Jordan reference into phosphine corrosion. <laughs> but I do, man. <laughs> that was great. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the only other thing that I'll mention uh, – uh, when it comes to phosphine corrosion is uh, something I've seen a lot of fumigators do in the past. Um, don't forget to take your phone out of your pocket and leave it in your vehicle or in your truck, or whatever the case is, before you go in and start aerating facilities. Um, I have had uh, fumigators that I've worked with in the past. They'll leave their phone in their pocket. They'll put on their SCBA. They'll be completely safe. They'll go into initiate aeration it may not ruin your phone the first time, the second time, the third time, but if you continue to take your phone in there, it has sensitive electronic equipment in it. You're going to turn that phone into a brick eventually. Uh, and I don't know about you guys, but phones are pretty expensive to replace these days. And I don't want to replace them because I've corroded it. So um, as a fumigator, it's always a good idea to take your phone out of your pocket before you go in. I, I bricked a couple before I learned my lesson. Yeah. I, well, I, we probably all have, to be honest with you. <laughs> uh, There's one guy that was on a fumigation crew with me years ago that I think uh, uh, every every summer he ended up bricking a phone and and uh, had to replace it. And he always gets super mad. So, well, you got to remember, you know. So <laughs> um, we only have one more question that we're going to cover today. Um, and this is a topic that's not talked about a lot, but we did get a question about this. Um, and I myself, I don't have a lot of experience with this. Uh, growing up in the Midwest, most of my fumigation experience, especially with phosphine, had to do with uh, grain bin, elevator, you know, commodity fumigations, things like that. So I just don't have a lot of experience with it myself. So I'm hoping that I'll learn a little bit by asking this question too. Um, but uh, burrow fumigations, uh, metal phosphides are allowed to be used for burrow fumigations. Uh, so can can we get a little bit of an explanation on what we mean by saying burrow fumigations and kind of a brief explanation on how it's actually done? Sure. I'll, I'll, I'll give it a shot and Blake, you can fill in the gaps. So uh, it's, all um, you, it's all you, man. <laughs> talk, talk about a very niche fumigation. Run burrows are, are in, the, in the field of fumigation. It's probably one of the narrowest fields. And it seems like it's such a simple fumigation, but it just, as you all know, once you really start digging into anything, the nuances of it are so layered and there are so many different components to it. So run burrow fumigations are no different. Um, they're intended to treat vertebrate pests uh, and they're not, and, and obviously fumigant 
paints with a very wide brush. So once you're applying the fumigant to a rodent burrow, it's going to kill anything in there. So first and foremost, make sure that the areas that you're applying or intending to apply the fumigant in um, don't have any protected species in them because that can be that can be fairly uh, problematic uh, for you, for your company, for, for your fumigation license, et cetera, et cetera. So that's sort of a, a byproduct of it. But first and foremost, really first and foremost is, again, back to the label. Read the label, especially if you have been doing these types of fumigations for a long period of time. Um, the label has been updated uh, a number of times with regard to Renborough fumigations because, uh, because of some safety concerns. Uh, there was an incident probably 10 or 12 years ago, a very tragic incident that resulted from a gross misapplication of product uh, in the state of Utah that resulted in, uh, in, in some fatalities. And the EPA really took a very close look at how rodent fumigations are done. So if you if you notice, uh, I believe Adam has our uh, fumitoxin or a phostoxin label pulled up. And if you notice right in the center, there was a great big disclaimer in red that, that, that deals with rodent burrow applications. Um, and yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, this, yeah. Yep, that's it. So, so yeah, starting on the, on the, on the front cover, it, it talks about rodent applications and then goes, section uh, 26 goes into the details of rodent burrow applications. So first and foremost, make sure that the area that you're applying the, the, the fumigant in is permissible by law. And the label has some restrictions about 100 foot dis distances from residential areas and, and some restrictions on hospital uh, grounds, nursing home grounds, school grounds, some exceptions for athletic fields. Nonetheless, those are left up to interpretation by the individual states um, uh, departments of ag. So prior to any run borough application, I really encourage all of you because there is there is some 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 uh, some ambiguity in, in how some of these provisions are, are uh, handled in different states, especially states that, uh, that, that are much more sensitive to run borough fumigation. So uh, please consult with your state agencies and make sure that you're doing uh, whatever it is that you're doing is in, in, uh, uh, in accordance with their rules and regulations. But um, the, 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 the premise of the fumigation is very simple. Uh, you apply uh, the, the aluminum phosphide to the individual boroughs, uh, then you cover them up uh, you, you bury the, the cover the opening with a burlap sack and some dirt, uh, or 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 some sort of sheeting in it and dirt, so that the so that the rodents uh, don't come back out uh, when they do detect phosphine. Uh, you can introduce the the aluminum phosphide directly into the burrows into the openings if you know where the openings are. There's also some uh, specialized equipment that allows you to penetrate into the different burrow areas. Uh, there are restrictions as to how many. Uh, the maximum of how many tablets and pellets are allowed in each uh, in each borough. So make sure you don't exceed uh, those minimums. Uh, make sure you placard the area very clearly in accordance with label instructions. Uh, so everybody in the area is aware of what's going on. Make sure the property owner is aware of what's going on. Um, and that's all sort of falls back to uh, FMP as well. So in preparation of your fumigant man fumigation management plan, uh, make sure that all of those areas are addressed. Uh, and you're following the label to the T doing these fumigations, especially uh, in areas uh, where you're, where you're uh, neighboring uh, the restrictions of where it, it can and cannot be applied. So I don't know if, uh, 
I'm sure they left a few gaps, but that's sort of the meat and potatoes of of, of the Royal Bar of Fumigations. Yeah. Well, I think the most important thing uh, that you that you brought up was just uh, well, the two most important things to me that you brought up were number one, making sure that you're reading the labor label and the manual prior to trying to do any burrow fumigation, uh, just because it is such a niche market and because it does have a lot more restrictions than than your standard fumigations in, in most cases. And then the second thing that you brought up that I think is key as well is consultation. If you're not familiar or comfortable doing these, ask for some advice, ask for some help, reach out to your local and state regulatory agencies to get some guidance from them. And you can also call us and get some guidance from us as well. We'll be happy to answer any questions that you have. We'd much rather, I promise you, we'd much rather have you safe and applying uh, the the uh, phosphine correctly to the burrows than trying to hazard guesses or, or take chances. So you can reach out to us at any time. And I will, uh, you can reach out to us at podcast at degishamerica.com. Uh, you can find us on our website at degishamerica.com also. Um, so you can reach out to us uh, in, in those uh, areas. We have a contacts page on our website if you want to talk to any any one of us specifically. Uh, our phone numbers on our website, of course. You can find us on all the major social media outlets. Uh, I mean, you, you if if you just search Dagish America, you're going to find us. I promise. So that's right. Um, and, and, uh, speaking of speaking of the web website, we do have um, both the specialized placards. Correct me if I'm wrong. And the the specialized placards and the application equipment, we offer that as well. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yep. We sure do. So, so, so Benny, you're exactly right. Uh, feel free to reach out to us for consultation. Not only are, are the three of us licensed fumigators, but uh, we're, we're, we, we can see things from a couple of different perspectives uh, as Degish America is, is a product registrant and we're also a manufacturer. So uh, we have folks on staff that, that can uh, that can provide guidance going all the way back to the production of the product. So are there any technical questions, any any sort of application questions, any storage questions, any any questions related to not just the application of the fumigant, we certainly have those folks available as well. Yeah. Yeah. We have a we have a wealth of knowledge that we're ready, willing and able to share with any and all that need that need the assistance. So uh, please don't hesitate to reach out to us. Okay, well, that's the last question that we were going to field today, gentlemen. Um, I want to thank uh, both of you for taking some time out of your day to answer uh, some of these questions that came in through season two, and that's the end of season two, actually. So hopefully, everybody had a, uh, learned a lot. Hopefully, everybody were, was entertained. All of our uh, viewers and listeners were entertained uh, by the podcast. We will have another season uh, at uh, kind of late first quarter next year is kind of our tentative plan right now. Uh, if anybody has any uh, ideas or suggestions for topics for our podcast that are related to fumigation or pest control in general, please don't hesitate to reach out and let us know. Again, you can reach us at podcast at dagishamerica.com or you can reach us uh, at dagishamerica.com. Uh, either of those, uh, either the website or just a direct email to podcast at degishamerica.com will get uh, to me directly, I promise. Uh, so, uh, and I also wanted to take an opportunity to thank uh, Adam Thompson. I think uh, all of you may have heard his voice pipe in here and there a little bit, and we refer to him. Uh, Adam Thompson's our digital media coordinator, and he was kind enough to set all this up for us uh, and help us with the uh, digital portions of today's uh, live stream. So thank you, Adam. I really appreciate your help uh, with that. background man. 
<laughs> yeah, the background man, I like that. <laughs> so, and, so and Ben, if I may, I'd like sure. to thank you for putting the first two seasons together. And I really appreciate all of the participants who helped make season one and two a success. And most importantly, I really appreciate all the viewers. Hopefully you found the listeners. Hopefully you found the uh, the podcast interesting, engaging, informative, uh, maybe even a little entertaining. So thank you all so much for, for being a part of it. And I wish everybody a safe and healthy holiday uh, coming up. And, and thank you for, for your attention. Yeah, well, I think that's a great place to end it. I, yep. I'll, I'll echo Bartek's sentiments. And uh, that's it. Blake, unless you have uh, something else you want to say, we, we can call it done. Ditto. <laughs> I like that, yeah. All right. Well, no. thanks again, everybody. I really appreciate it. Look for season three and make sure you go back. If you haven't had an opportunity, make sure you go back and you give uh, seasons one and two a listen. Uh, we we think that there's a lot of really good information there from a wide variety of industry experts. Uh, so if you haven't had a chance, go back and listen to season one and season two and look for season three at the end of the first quarter next year. Thanks a lot, thanks everybody. I really appreciate it. Thanks, everybody. It. And Thank if you. you're listening to this podcast, Please, uh, if you're listening to this podcast at your podcast outlet, please check out the YouTube video version of it as we do go through the manual uh, and some other documents live on screen so you can check it out and see what's going on there when yes. we're talking about specific things. Yes, thank you for There's mentioning the man. Adam. I appreciate it. <laughs> Our digital media coordinator. There's the man. Save of the day. All right, thanks, everybody. Have a great thank afternoon. You. See ya.